in first century Jerusalem, you would see a group of disciples or students walking through the streets and among them leading the way their teacher, their rabbi. So valuable was the opportunity to follow the rabbi that you longed to be covered in the dust of his feet. Jesus of Nazareth was walking those ancient streets. Today, Jesus is still calling disciples. Come, follow me, that all who draw near may be covered in dust. things right now that I'm setting down. There are just so many things. How you guys doing? Good, good. It is good to see you. We are going to look at the Bible today, and I am so excited. Uh, if you have not met me yet, my name is Nolan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And let me just tell you, uh, this week was really weird and awesome for me. Um, I, my wife and I, uh, since, I don't know, my, my first son, Ollie, was born, had not been out like on an airplane together for the last seven years. And this week, we did it. And so uh, exciting stuff. You know, husbands, it, you know. Uh, uh, leaving a lot of room for you to like feel good about yourself because we didn't take a trip in seven years. Husband goals right here, okay? Um, but with that said, it was an amazing time. And uh, one of the places we went was uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Anybody F Phoenix, Arizona? <laughs> yeah, I know you're from Phoenix. So uh, that's a, it's a beautiful place. If you have not been there, they have this majestic thing called the sun. It's so amazing. Makes you warm and like you feel less gloomy uh, like you do up here. And so like one of the things that uh, in places where there is the sun they have is another thing called the sunset. The sunset. Have you guys seen this? It is amazing. Uh, so beautiful was the sunset that I had to take like an IG video. You know what I'm talking about? And so uh, here's my IG video. Uh, and this video doesn't even scratch the surface on what that sunset looked like. Have any of you guys ever like tried to take a photo or video of a sunset? Man, like we have been upgrading iPhones for the last 20 years or something, and it still cannot capture it. Like what is going on? Every time you try to take a video, I'm like trying to like click on things, see if the purple hues will come out, but it always falls short of the reality. And the only way to really show someone a sunset is just put your phone down and say, hey, come over here. Look at what I'm seeing. Like, there's no way to describe it. Human language, you can summon all the powers of human language, and it still falls short, doesn't it? You can't describe it. Someone has to experience it. And hear me on this. We have been describing the importance and the power of reading the Bible, but today I want to tell you this. You have to experience it. Like you can't hear it secondhand. Uh, Jason and I can't demand that you read it and tell you it's going to be a life-changing experience. You just have to sit in front of the power of the word and let it wash over you. Because then you will have a taste for it. Then you personally will understand the majesty. You will understand the transformative power. Charles Spurgeon, prince of preachers, best preacher who ever lived, in my opinion, uh, he used to argue that trying to defend the importance and the power of the Bible, the importance of the power of the gospel, was kind of like trying to defend a lion in a cage. It was like, you're sitting here, like, oh, you guys, watch out. This lion is powerful. It's amazing. Like, it's claws and talons. And you're, like, trying to describe it to people. He says, look, the best way to show people the power of the lion is let the lion out of the cage. 
Today's message is called, Let's Let the Lion Out. Let the lion out. I want you to experience the power of the word by reading one of the most significant passages in scripture. This passage of scripture, uh, and you can open up your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, we will have it on the screen. Here's what we're going to see in this passage. We are going to see the point of the entirety of the Bible in a climactic form, and it's, it's centralized in these few verses. Have you ever asked the question, like, what is the Bible about? Like, why did God go through all of this effort to, you know, sovereignly work the human authors into creating what we now have in our laps today? Like, why did God do that? Why did God create not just a book, but a library of books, 66 to be exact, 40 different human authors, three different language across 1,500 plus years on three different continents? Why would God do that? You know why he did that? to explain to you fully the majesty of Jesus. That's it. And so this passage is literally the point of the Bible right here. You guys ready? Let's open up our Bibles and and just let the lion out here. Look at verse 15. This is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is God's word. Uh, We're going to go through this all the way to 23, but I just want to stop here. And I want you to see the importance of this first section. Let's just look again at verse 15, the the first part of that verse. What does it say? It says, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Stop right there. Wow. Like, do you know what this passage is saying right here? Just this section? Well, what I want you to see is that when you read Scripture, this is going to happen all the time, but what you're seeing is that Scripture exposes the enormity of Jesus. Scripture exists to expose the enormity of Jesus, Um, and that's exactly what he's getting after, and we'll we'll see why. But how many of you had this experience? And and I definitely had it. Graduate from high school, go to some college classes, and you're sitting under this professor who has a bias against Christianity because he's too smart for it, right? He's academic, he understands more than you, and so he's presenting to you that, uh, and I've had this happen, where they say, look, the Christianity that you, some of you Christians might have grown up with, that Christianity is not exactly the Christianity that the earliest Christians believed. Uh, They probably believed Jesus was some kind of like, I don't know, enlightened rabbi, enlightened guru, and this was this kind of cult aberration of Judaism that started to grow, but it also started to evolve. And it wasn't even really until the Middle Ages that uh, Christianity had this enormous and divine view of Jesus. You guys heard this argument? Anybody been to college? You're a very uneducated church. I mean, this is what... This is what you're going to hear. And by the way, if you're a young person, this is exactly what you're going to hear in college. The only problem with that argument, it sounds very academic, doesn't it? The problem with that argument is just the Bible, okay? Because the Bible is uh, one of the most historically valid documents in antiquity. There is no book that compares to the Bible. We can be absolutely certain that the books of the New Testament were written at the time that 
is suggested in the intro to the books in your New Testament. Like we have all of the evidence, everything is there. And so to suggest that the earliest Christians had a small view of Jesus, you need to compare that to the earliest document, meaning the Bible. And so what does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus is utterly enormous, that Jesus is divine. This passage is just that. And uh, let's look. So this word here, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What what does he mean by that? This isn't like a phrase we typically use, like, okay, you know, um, Billy is the image of the invisible Daniel. Like, what does this phrase mean? It almost sounds like uh, archaic. Well, let's dig in here. The word there for image is the Greek word icon. The icon. Jesus is the icon of God, of the invisible God, presumably God the Father. And so what does that mean to be the image of God? Uh, It means several things, but what I want you to see here is Paul is probably at first stressing access. That Jesus is not just a good teacher, but he is the very focal point, the access we have to God. That word icon is actually, uh, you know, the ancient word that also means like idol. If you know what idols are, you go to your local, um, you know, Thai food restaurant, you, you will see idols there. Oftentimes they're burning incense to idols, but this is an ancient thing. It's been around forever. The human heart is constantly coming up with idols. And these are physical kind of locus points where you find access to a divine lowercase g, God. And Paul takes that language and says, actually, no, no, no. You do not need idols for an access point to the divine. We have Jesus. And so he says we have access. And so some of you think, like, what is the point of that? Like, why is that such a big deal? Why do we need this big, like, Jesus's access point idea? Here's why. Because you want it. (laughs) Because you want it. Um, A number of years ago, I was uh, working at a coffee shop right 13 years ago. I was working at this coffee shop. I'm just getting like really old. 13 years ago, we were in a coffee shop. I was working in this coffee shop, and um, I was talking to this kind of like Portlandy hippie, hipster lady. And, I, you know, Sharon, I was Christian, new Christian, all this stuff for the last couple years. And she's like, cool, dude. Like, right on Christianity, yo. And I was like, oh, okay, so you're not like a Christian. Like, do you believe in anything spiritual? And I remember that she stopped in her tracks. And she's like, oh, yeah, I totally do. Reached into her pocket and pulled out these crystals and like, I'm not even joking. She goes, I believe in crystals. And I was like, what? Like, like not sure she was totally serious. Like, you believe in like crystals? She's like, yeah, like I believe in crystals. And she starts telling me the spiritual significance of each one of these crystals. And she, so you look at that story, and I've told this story for years, and you're like, surely this is 13 years ago. Like, surely we've continued to progress beyond that. Like, even in a matter of years, you see that humanity continues to change in our political affiliations, in our spiritual associations, in our secularization. So even 13 years ago, maybe they were like barbaric or whatever and believing in idols. But listen to me. The other day, I was reading an article, um, Vox Magazine, in 2018, talking about how these crystals have not got less popular, but addressing the explosive popularity of these crystals. It's big business. This is still going on. You may know people who literally, like, have bought these off Amazon. Like, this is what's coming out. Like, crystals are a big thing. We have not, with all our secularization and all our science and all of our progress, gotten less spiritual. We have gotten more spiritual. We have just replaced the Bible. We have replaced Jesus. We have replaced the foundation in, the, in God and the gospel with everything under the sun, including crystals. That's what I'm telling you here. Like, you're like, no, she was keeping Portland weird. Portland is getting weirder. 
Like, we're just continuing on because the human heart doesn't get less created in God's image, and the human heart does not get less spiritual. It is made so. You were made for divine access. You want it, and people are chasing it. The only problem is they don't know the truth and the reality of it, and his name is Jesus. Like, if you're here and you're spiritual, dude, I love you. I'm not here to make fun of you. This is not my point. My point is I want to introduce you to Jesus. Like, I want you to know where access is found. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. It's the good name of Jesus. Now, if Paul were just saying Jesus is our access to God, we might be able to still relegate him to the corner of history as yet another idol, right? And matter of fact, all religions deal with Jesus. Did you know this? Uh, Almost every religion under the sun actually has a category for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The only difference is none of those religions actually claim he is Lord. Uh, If you take, for example, the the cult of Christianity, so like Mormonism, Mormonism has a place for Jesus. What do they say Jesus is? That Jesus is the polygamous half-brother of Lucifer and the spirit father of all white people. That's funny, but it's true. That's in their doctrine. Not very popular anymore. And not only that, Jesus grew into godhood, much like you and I can grow into godhood. And so Jesus is not the eternal creator God in Mormonism. He is one of a pantheon of gods that we can become. That's Mormonism. They have a place for Jesus. You take Jehovah's Witnessism. What do they say Jesus is? They say that Jesus is the created being, Michael the archangel, not the creator God. Uh, You you, you take uh, New Age or Baha'i or Hinduism or Buddhism, they all have a place for Jesus. It's fascinating what they will tell you, and I've had Buddhists tell me this, that we have Jesus too. We have the Jesus. He is just a lesser guru, an enlightened man to the Buddha. And same thing with all of them. They'll say he's enlightened, but just not as enlightened or uh, as wise or as good or as exalted as a prophet as Muhammad or, or you name the prophet out there. They all have a place for Jesus. But you know what none of them will tell you? That Jesus is God. Christianity stands alone in this claim. The Bible has the highest view of Jesus. And this text is one of them presenting such a view. Uh, when we take this word icon, Jesus used it in another place. He actually said, hey, give me a coin. Give me a coin. Uh, He wasn't doing public debate here. They handed him a coin. He says, whose icon is on this? And you know whose icon that was? It was Caesar's. Because there was an image of Caesar. This word means to reflect. This word, this is what you saw in the mirror this morning as you were getting getting ready. For some of us, that was a less pleasurable experience than others. Uh, Less satisfying. Like, man, I look like that. I'm balding more. And so this is kind of like what we see. John 14, 9, Jesus is the image of God, correlates to this, whoever has seen me, Jesus referring to himself, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is God himself. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is our God. This is Jesus. Jesus, he's saying, makes visible the invisible God. Jesus makes knowable the unknowable God. If you want to know what God is like, and some of you have come in here with your own ideas of God as well. You may not be Jehovah's Witness or Baha'i or any of these other religions. You're like, man, I don't believe in all that stuff. But you showed up with a theology. There's no human being in this room who does not have a theology. Even if your theology is there is no God, I'm God. 
But we all have a theology, and we've all walked in here. The question is, is your theology more accurate or less accurate according to the Bible? The Bible presents Jesus as God, and this is very important. We need to know who Jesus is, because we could talk about all these religions. We could talk about people who have differing views of God and all of this stuff, but Christian, like Christian, do you have a biblical view of Jesus? Or are you defining Jesus basically on your, your Sunday school experience? I remember this one felt, bell, uh, uh, felt board story. You know, like, uh, you know, Jesus loves animals because Noah's Ark or, or whatever. And you're like basing all of this on kind of loose and pop level cultural Christianity. Look, I'm not here to insult you. But you may have a truncated view of Jesus. You may not be absorbing the full nutrients and richness of who he is. You know where we find an accurate picture of Jesus? In our Bibles. And in our Bibles alone. I mean, I meet Christians who are like, man, I'm not that into the Bible. And I'm like, you're not that into the Bible. Like, again, this isn't to shame those people, but to say that the only location we have any clarity on who Jesus is, on who we're saying is our God, I'm just not that interested in it. This is, this is tantamount to insanity, and we're missing out, and I want you to experience all of who he is. You're missing out on Jesus. We need to know Jesus. Man, my wife's a photographer, right? And so she takes photos of people. She labors over these photos. She's like sweating and like going crazy in her little dungeon of an office and just like working at it. And she loves this stuff. And so there, and there's all these details. There's aperture, ISO. There's like, you know, uh, how far or close you are to people, different angles. There's all the things. Any photographers in the house? Uh, videographers? Okay, two of you, sick. All right, so no, there's all the rest of you guys. This, like there's many, many details that go into it. And so you have to get them all right. And they all matter, and so she labors. And then there's this moment that's very vulnerable. You send your photos to somebody else, the, the, the client. And they get them, and uh, what's funny is, like, most of the time, she's labored so hard on the back end that when you get it, it's like, oh, this is good. But there are occasions where it's like, hey, you missed this or that, or can we get this other one that we, we, we wanted? And so she'll send that back. But there's this funny thing that happens where you'll actually have some client, the clients message her back, and they're like, yeah, I don't. I don't like these photos. And she's like, oh, dang, what did I do wrong? And so she'll ask them, like, well, what's wrong with them? And they'll go, you know, my husband, he, like, looks way bald in these photos. <laughs> and she's like, he looks bald? What did I do? And then she's looking at the photos, and she's looking at the dude. <laughs> photos, the dude, photos, the dude. And she's like, I, I think your husband looks bald balder because he's getting balder. <laughs> because what photos are supposed to do is give you, for better or worse, an accurate picture of what's there. <laughs> Here's my only question for you. Do you have accuracy in your knowledge of God? It changes everything. Who your God is, is the most important thing about you. <laughs> So you need to define him rightly, see him in his grace, see him in his majesty, see him in his power and his authority. This is Jesus. And so some of you uh, will continue looking at the text, and a couple people came up to me afterwards, and so this is a, a point of consternation. Let's look at the next line here. It says, well, if Jesus is God, look at this next verse. It says, well, he's the firstborn of all creation. You're like, firstborn? That means Jesus was created. He's the firstborn of creation. Therefore, he's not God. Throw your Bibles away, give up on Christianity, do whatever you want with your lives, you know? Like, it's over. 
What is the deal here? What does it mean that he's firstborn of creation? I want to point a couple things out here. Uh, first of all, why is Paul saying firstborn? Well, Paul is a Jew, a Jewish teacher. Rabbis of that day would actually use this term firstborn for, um, for Yahweh God himself at times. And if you have any question whether Jews believe that Yahweh God was created, like ask an ancient Jew. They'd be willing to die for it, and many of them did. They'd be willing to die that he was eternal. Um, furthermore, uh, the word firstborn here is prototokos, the Greek term prototokos, and it can be used for firstborn, but it can also be used for highest rank. If you are the leader of a legion, an army, uh, you are not like the firstborn physically of your brothers here, right? Like your brother soldiers. Like there's a brotherhood there and you are highest rank. That's how this works. Uh, furthermore, this is the same uh, concept that's actually brought in uh, Psalm 89. What we see is that it's referring to the Messiah as king over creation, Lord over everything. And so it certainly does not necessarily mean that he is created. In fact, that's in context, not Paul's point. It's more, uh, why, why would you say firstborn for highest rank? Uh, we understand this today. Uh, there are times when I go in my oldest son's room, I have three kids, and I see that they are all in there. They're literally chewing through, like, the drywall, <laughs> like, like actual rodents, and, like, pulling, like, electrical things out of the, like, ah! And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Right? Do I hold the, like, two-year-old accountable for chewing on, a, like, electrical stuff? Like, no, because if I did, she'd be like, sorry, Daddy, and I'd be like, melt, and it's over at that point. Like, okay, you're a good girl. I hold my son Ollie accountable. I'm like, what have you done, son? He's like, why me? I'm like, you are the oldest, bro. Therefore, you're the leader. You're the example. You're leading them into this. You could have stopped them. Your highest rank here. Oldest, oldest kids in the house. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I was a middle kid. So I wasn't loved. Um, <laughs> my parents loved me. Furthermore, we have context here. I don't even know where we were just a moment ago. <laughs> Prototokos, firstborn, highest rank. All right. Furthermore, uh, the, the, the context here matters because basically what you see, he, he uses a conjunction, which if you remember grammar from like fifth grade, it's combining two thoughts or sentences, right? And, and it's essentially the conjunction because, but in our English translations, it's for here. So he's like, he's firstborn of all creation because, verse 16, what you're going to see is the reason. We know that. And what is the reason? This long sentence. For by him all things were created. Like, that kind of sounds like creator God. In heaven and on earth. This is the immaterial and the material. This is the whole of creation. He's like talking about the whole of creation using extremes here. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's God. He's the Lord of creation. And he is before all things. He precedes everything because he's eternal. And in him, all things hold together. If everything's created for you, if you hold the cosmos themselves together, and not just the cosmos, but the immaterial reality that precedes the cosmos, don't you think you are creator God? You are either creator God or you're an extremely, you know, incredible creation. How is God giving this kind of authority? He is clearly stating that Jesus is God. If he was to say this to Jews, they would have stoned him immediately. In fact, multiple times they tried. And so make no mistake, he is casting a big and divine vision of Jesus. All right, theology lecture over. How are we doing? Here's the deal. Do we just talk about this so we can nerd out on like theology? 
Is this like my nerd session to like get it out of my system? Maybe, okay. <laughs> Maybe, because I do like theology. But actually, this matters because your soul is desperate for it. We talk about the bigness of Jesus. Scripture, again and again, as you read your Bible in the mornings, that's our point, you are going to see an enormous Jesus. And you need to see an enormous Jesus. Like, you need him. Because, here is the deal, your soul has this massive craving for more. And listen to me, Christ alone is infinite enough to satisfy your soul's inexhaustible craving. You have these very deep longings, human being. Like you were made for more. You know that your soul has such a deep craving that it could swallow the universe over and still be unsatisfied. It could still be unsatisfied having been given the whole universe. I was at a conference earlier and um, this pastor from New York, which I'm always like surprised that New York exists. I'm like, oh yeah, there's a New York out there because we live so far away. And he's describing the kinds of people that come to his church. Like what would it be like to pastor over there? And he said they're the the most unique people on on the planet. And what they do is uh, we're talking 18 to 25 year olds move into the city of New York the most, like one of the most expensive cities on earth, they are there chasing a dream, paying $8,000 for like a 200 square foot studio apartment. No joke, right? That's what they're doing there. And why are they doing it? Because they are chasing after this big dream of greatness. And they're willing to go up against Wall Street. And they're willing to go up against currently famous actors. And they're willing to go up against billionaires. And they're willing to go up against uh, investors and all of these people. And they're literally going to the city that Frank Sinatra himself said, if you can make it here, like you can make it anywhere. And that's what they're doing. Why would they do it? Because their souls are craving a greatness that nothing else can satisfy. There's this longing. There's saying, I want more. And they're willing to make any sacrifice to get it. And you hear that. And you're like, yeah, bro, but like, I'm a Greshamite, okay? <laughs> like, I'm not craving like the big apple. Like, I don't need to eat that. I'm good. Like, all I want is, you know, a house a little closer to boring and a labradoodle, right? Like, that's what most of you guys are going after. I know, I follow you on social media, right? That's what you're going after. But here's the deal. It manifests different for people in Gresham, Sandy, Wood Village, doesn't it? And this is what I mean. It manifests in your desires and your disappointments. It manifests in so many people dissatisfied with their own spouse. And just like, what, this, this ache you have inside, like, man, they're just not doing it for me. And so you've turned to pornography. Right? You've got this addiction that's secret. Or you're flirting with, you know, a, a coworker. And what is that coming from? Well, here's where that's coming from. Your spouse was never designed to satisfy your soul. You have a bigger, a deeper, and a more ancient ache that can only be satisfied in Christ. You're pinning something on, on them that they can't fulfill. They're a finite human being like you, and this is where it manifests. Your soul longs for more, but it needs to be satiated only on the bigness of Christ. Uh, others of you, it's like you're pushing harder at work. Bro, you're going in early, you're staying late, you're like skipping out on vacation time, you're pushing PTO aside, you're just, just a little bit more, just a little bit harder, just another zero. You're pushing, you're pushing, you're sacrificing your family just a little bit more. Why are you doing it? Be- because you're chasing after this enormous thing. Your soul is a vacuum, you'll never find it. That's the case. Or for some of you, you're like, man, I'm not driven in those ways. Instead, you're deeply disappointed. 
And so you know that you can't achieve these desires, and so you've resigned yourself to deep and prolonged disappointment. You go home, you just get through the day, and you watch two hours of Netflix every night to take the edge off. Not a bad thing to watch Netflix. I mean, in some cases, maybe it is. (laughs) Maybe it is. But the truth is, it's because you're deeply dissatisfied when satisfaction is readily available in Christ, found in the Word. Um, (laughs) You know where Paul was when he wrote this? He was in prison for the first time in Rome. It's actually the place where he wrote Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There are some, you know, atheistic scholars who argue that Colossians isn't even Paul. There's no, like, actual historical evidence for why, except this. He exalts Christ so mightily in, in these exact verses. And they say, oh, there's no other exaltation of Christ that compares, and so this maybe isn't even Paul because it's not his style. And, you go, and I'm going, like, you can't think of any other reason that he would exalt Christ significantly here. He is in prison. You know why I think he exalts Christ so highly in this text? Because the human soul that is rotting away in prison needs a big vision to sustain them. It needs an exalted vision of Christ. Listen, like young people come up to me, and, and no, no offense if you're young. No offense if, this, if, if you feel this way. I've felt this way in the past. But I'm just going to be really honest and like kind of pull back the veil on like what, what it's like to be a pastor. People are like, man, I'm, I'm going to cool, kind of pull back from church a little bit. I go, okay, why? I'm going to pull back from serving. I'm serving in kids. I'm like showing up on Sundays, just getting to be a lot. I'm going to groups. And then like my life is already crazy. I got this going on with work. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm afraid that I might be burning out. I'm afraid I might be burning out. And I'm looking at Paul in the text of the Bible, dying and wasting away day after day, being shipwrecked and writing books of the Bible from prison. And I just want to tell American Christians today, including myself at times, like, with all due respect, burning out, like, you're not even burning yet. Like, Jesus, burnout is not a symptom of doing too much for Christ or pursuing Christ hard enough. Burnout is a symptom of not being filled up by the fuel of a big Jesus. That's how this work works. You need, you need to open the lid of your soul and pour the big Jesus of Scripture in and let him fuel your fire and let him transform and to change you. That is why we need an enormous Jesus in Scripture. That's point one, and we still have point two, okay? Point two. So enormity of Jesus, point two this. Scripture will recreate you through the concept of the gospel. Scripture will recreate you through the concept of the gospel. What is it that changes a human being? We all want to change. We're going to the salon. We're going to the gym. We're going to getting more education. You're trying to, you know, climb up the ladder. You're doing all these things to transform you. We all long for it, whether you're a believer or not. What can we put in a bottle that will change us? Paul the Apostle actually has an answer. He says it's the cross of Christ. Uh, Look at verse 19. He says, and though, excuse me, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's stop right there. I want you to underline this, this phrase. And through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the what? By the blood of his cross. Why is this significant? Um, if you catch what he's saying there, he's saying that the cosmos, like, like unstoppable forces, stars, koala bears, and kangaroos, like all of it in creation, That is going to be reconciled to God, restored to God, changed and transformed like you see at the end of a Disney movie when Jesus comes back. 
It's like, ah, like everything's going to change when Christ comes back. You know what the mechanism for that change is? It's fascinating because he does not say it's Christ's return here, though that's part of it. He says it's because of the blood of his cross. The cross is so central and necessary to Christianity and the life of the Christian because it is the cross that is going to renew the cosmos, and therefore it is the cross that renews and recreates your soul as well, Christian. Some of us think of the cross as the introduction to Christianity. Well, I believed in the gospel. I believed that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that Jesus, it's like kind of the, the, the diving board of Christianity, and then you kind of swim in the pool by getting more holy and like swimming and swimming and doing your own works to make yourself a better person, that that's your version of Christianity. And here's the deal. The gospel is not the diving board of Christianity. The gospel is the entire pool. It's something we should be meditating on day in and day out. It is a concept it is news, information about a Messiah who came, lived without sin, and died for the very thing that got the cosmos and you and I into the mess we are in, our sin. He died in our place, selflessly, unimaginably. The creator God in flesh died on our behalf in a body, bloody, brutalized, marred, destroyed for us. Why? So that he could absorb the penalty for our sin. That is his great love poured out for you, and this is our good news. It's a bloody cross. We cannot talk about a crossless Christianity today because a crossless Christianity does not save. We may not like to talk about the blood, but it is the blood that atoned for our sin, and he resurrected from the grave. This is our good news. Now, why is that not the diving board but the entire pool? Because the cross has implications for our everyday lives, not just salvation. Salvation is both a one-time event and an ongoing process. It's a one-time event and an ongoing process. Here's what I mean. Paul is going to make uh, that point here. Look at verse 21. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's our sin, he has now finished has, past tense, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, there's a cross, in order to present you, you and me, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the one-time event part of it, right? This is what you believed in Sunday school and got you baptized. This is the introduction to Christianity, yes and amen, when God the Holy Spirit opened up your heart and you were born again in that moment by belief in a good gospel of substitution of grace, of welcome, a welcome we couldn't earn. But it's also a continued thing that we, we need to have our hearts punctured by that gospel at one point in time. You need to be punctured by the gospel, but Paul says you also need to persevere in it. Uh, look at verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Listen to the Colossian church. Their issue most likely was that there were false teachers showing up literally to preach an ungospel. To say, hey, like, yeah, Jesus is good, but like you need Jesus plus religion. 
You need Jesus plus asceticism. You need Jesus plus good works. You need Jesus because the gospel's not enough, and so you need to add Judaism to it. You need to add works-based religion to it. You need to add magic to it, like all this stuff. That's basically what's going on. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. The cross is sufficient for the Christian when they wake up on Monday morning. And the cross is sufficient for the Christian when they're going to church on Sunday. And the cross is sufficient when you're going through cancer. And the cross is sufficient when your son is straying away from Jesus and you don't know what to do about it. And the cross is sufficient when the answer is, I want a divorce. And the cross is sufficient every single day, whatever season, whatever reason, every day, meditating, understanding, and applying the cross is the answer. That's it. We are a cross-based Christian because we desperately need his forgiveness. We desperately need his reconciliation and all its implications. Now, I could do a whole sermon series on what that means. And I have three minutes. And so, here's what I want to show you real quick. So, what I mean by like the the cross continues, this is very, um, very, I want you to really focus in what I'm saying here. Basically, it's an idea that we need to apply everywhere to our lives. Okay, um, and that is the process of sanctification. You grow more and more like Jesus by reapplying the cross everywhere. It's kind of like the Christian life is not just a, a life of one conversion, but of a million micro conversions, where God gets more and more and more of you. Um, and uh, this is valuable because every worldview that we could contend with basically teaches one thing. And I don't care whether you're talking about humanism. Atheism, you're talking about uh, Islam, Buddhism, all the world religions, you could summarize this way. That it's the rat race of religion that you need to earn and you need to achieve in order to be justified, in order to be accepted. Christianity stands alone in saying, no, Jesus was justified for you, so you are accepted and adopted and loved. And that truth changes everything. And so how do we apply this gospel, this alternative story that Christianity offers to our lives. Let me give you something really, really, really practical. These are kind of four questions that a guy named Jeff Vanderstel up in Seattle um, presents in his book, Gospel Fluency, and I thought it was really helpful to, to make this practical. So let's look at this on the screen. Here's the four questions. Four questions are this, in every question of life. Number one, who is God? Number two, what has he done? Who are you in light of what he's done? And therefore, what should you do? See how this works. In this worldview of the gospel, we flow from who Jesus is. We flow into he, he's done this for us on the cross, or any variety of things he's done for us through the gospel. Who am I in light of that? And then lastly, what should we do? L- let me show you how this works out really, really practically. Uh, here's some examples. <clears throat> so we would say, who is God? God is the Father, right? That's his nature. Uh, so what has he done? Well, in the gospel, through Jesus, he's chosen and adopted you. Isn't that good news? And then it goes on, and then who am I in light of that? Well, I'm a loved son or daughter. It utterly changes your identity, and therefore, what should I do? I mean, I get to walk in secure, uh, securely. I get to welcome others, because I am a brother in the Lord. I have been given grace. And so even outsiders, man, I need to pursue and love them like a brother, my neighbor, man, treat him like my sister because I am secure in Christ. Do you guys see how this works? I think this is really helpful. But this also works backwards. Because um, some of you say, well, I can believe this in theory, but, but how, what do I do with like, I'm struggling right now with sin. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling with my kid. Let's go backwards. So if we were to reverse it, we say, what are you doing? 
what are you doing? What's going on in your life? What's, what are you struggling with? Number two, we would say, therefore, who are you in light of what you're doing? Or who do you believe you are? And then what has God done to make you believe that according to this thought? And then lastly, who do you believe God is in light of that? It may seem a bit confusing until we put some examples on the screen. Let's put the examples. What are you doing? Well, I'm scraping for control. I'm sick of my husband. I don't trust him, right? That things are falling out of my life. I'm, I'm, going, to, you know, I'm going, going to work. I'm, I'm struggling. Things feel out of control, so I'm scraping for control, right? Number two, well, who are you? In that framework, I'm my own God. God's not God. I am God. That's the lie that we're believing. So what is... What has God done? Well, in this framework, you're saying, like, he's probably abandoned me. He didn't show up when I needed him most. He didn't show up for the trial we just went through. He didn't show up. Where is God right now? And then lastly, well, who is God? Well, he must be a deadbeat dad God of deism or non-existent. God must be asleep. Do you see how this identifies the lies? You can be a Christian and check all the boxes of like, man, I believe the Bible's inerrant. I believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. I believe in sovereignty and not everybody does. And look at me. But your life says otherwise. This is how it works. And this isn't to shame you and say, look, you're in sin. You believe lies. No, this is to help us unearth and cultivate gospel centrality in our everyday. Amen. This is where we start to, self to, to, to self-diagnose. I'm like, I'm going through this. And so these are the lies I believe. And then once you get to the end, and I would encourage some of you who are really going through it to like write this out and try it. At the end, when you've identified really honestly what you believe about God, reverse it, go the other way. Start to replace the lie, which began in the garden with Satan, with the truth which came to us in Jesus Christ. Here's who God really is. Here's what he has actually done. Here's what it says about my identity, my new identity, and therefore this is how I should live. Repentance always has to believe, uh, begin in the mind. It's not something we just like will ourselves into emotionally. We need to understand the truth. And so why should you read the Bible? Why should you let the lion out? Because you need to be formed by the gospel. Because you need a big Jesus who came to save on a bloody cross. And I'll, I'll just conclude with this. I heard recently that uh, we touch our phone 5,000 times. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Not me. You touch your phone 5,000 times. Bro. <laughs> I'm reading my Bible, right? That's just youth centers. No, we touch our phone 5,000 times. If you're touching anything 5,000 times, do you think that is forming you? into something, we are all being formed. Imagine if we were to reverse that and touch our Bibles that way. <laughs> Imagine if, what would you be like if instead of like being obsessed with what's going on and obsessed with social media and obsessed with the news and politics and all this stuff, we became a people, we became a church. Like what would our city look like if we were allowing ourselves to be touched by the gospel that many times? <laughs> How things would change. May we be a Bible-based church that is transformed by Jesus and his gospel. Father God, I just want to pray right now um, that, that right now your warmth, your goodness, your grace, your strength and justice, and ultimately the good that you have accomplished on the cross of Christ would fall on us right now. Lord, we have thought deeply about theology in this time. But I pray that you would allow these ideas to sink deeply into our hearts. 
I want to pray for brothers and sisters here uh, who are struggling and have wondered maybe for years why their salvation didn't work, why they can't get away from those addictions, why they continue to live like a mediocre, nominal Christian life rather than have the fire we see here in Paul. And I pray that they would apply the gospel today and do the deep heart work to see Lord, their lives begin to, little by little, be conformed one micro-conversion at a time into the likeness of Jesus, your son. Lord, we want to glorify you. And Lord, right now, I want to pray specifically for those who are not in Christ. Uh, They've come here wondering, or they've come here seeking, or they've come here uh, not even really wanting to be here, God. I pray that right now you would do deep gospel work in their souls, that they would see Jesus on that cross in their mind's eye and realize their deep need for a savior right now, God. I pray that they would be forgiven of sin, that would give it all to you and become a believer in Jesus Christ and begin the journey of formation. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.